This audio was recorded at Ideas Public Forum titled Democratic Transition, Successes and Challenges on 10 of July 2019. The two speakers are Dr. Radwan Masmudi and Ibrahim Sufyan. Dr. Radwan is the founder and president of the Center of the Study of Islam and Democracy, CSID. Ibrahim Sufyan is the program director of Merdeka Center for Opinion Research. We hope you will enjoy it. So welcome again, uh, ladies and gentlemen, to the second session today. Um, and uh, we're going to continue talking about uh, democratic transitions and uh, drawing a comparison if it is uh, possible. It's not easy to draw a comparison between Malaysia and Tunisia, two countries in two very different regions of the world. One interesting fun fact, I was just having an early morning conversation with Dr. Ridwan. Uh, Malaysia got independence in 1957, Tunisia in 1956. So almost same age in terms of as, as, as free countries. But then their paths on uh, democratic, uh, in terms of democratic traditions, have have varied considerably. Uh, Tunisia has been ruled by by, by dictators uh, for a long time uh, until the, the the beginning of the Arab Spring in 2011, 2010, um, and since then has I would say become uh, has become a sort of a shining light, uh, a beacon of democratic stability within the region. Uh, within the region of North Africa, Middle East. Essentially, uh, Arab Spring has, a, I, I would say, a, a mixed story. So we have both successes and reversals. Uh, we are happy to see that Tunisia is certainly on a positive side of the story. But what are the challenges since then? We will hear from Dr. Rizwan. And Malaysia, in terms of the procedural and formal democracy, uh, has been a democratic country since its independence. Uh, Malaysia is The fun fact is Malaysia is the only Muslim-majority country which has a continuum of elections. There's no other Muslim-majority country which can claim this. So in terms of, as I said, procedural and formal process, Malaysia is very democratic. But we know that we can talk about what is the difference between liberal democracy, liberal democracies, and so that discussion is there. Ben Ibrahim Sufyan is um, leading the Madrika Center, the opinion uh, poll agency, leading uh, agency in Malaysia. Uh, they recently released also a liberalism survey. I, uh, maybe he would like to talk about that. So I think we will have an interesting um, conversation about the democratic transitions as as we all know that since last, last one year in particular, Malaysia has also uh, in its own unique manner has entered a democratic transition phase. It has been con- contested how much it is new and how much it is old. I think it is both old and new, but this is also something very interesting to watch in now and in the next uh, couple of years in terms of democratic transitions. Also, we can, you know, we can little, little talk about broader social patterns. Both countries have different social fabrics. Uh, Malaysia is very diverse in terms of ethnic and religious uh, diversity. Uh, I guess Tunisia is less diverse, um, pre, uh, dominantly Muslim majority country. Economic situation was also varied. Uh, Malaysia has, uh, uh, you know, sort of economically much developed. Uh, Tunisia is also uh, in the region has, has has developed quite strongly. But maybe we can discuss if the time allows further on how the the democratic institutions can influence something economic progress or or otherwise. So we'd like to we could like to start uh, talk by Dr. Ridwan, who has spent. Uh, a long time, almost uh, 20 years in Washington, D.C., but last few years in Tunisia as well. So while he was leading and he set up the Center for Islam and Democracy, uh, I think the center has organized maybe about 100 plus conferences on democracy issues, a lot more, in fact, in the in the region, in, in the world. So he's very much known in this debate uh, in different parts of the world. And we're very happy that today he is Here, he was here for a conference, and so we thought that it's a good occasion to, to benefit from his presence. So over to you, Dr. Ridwan. Thank you very much, Ali. Assalamu alaikum. It's very nice to be with you. It's my first time in Malaysia, so I'm very happy to be here. Just, uh, I want to talk about the democratic transition to Tunisia. Um, my area of expertise and my studies in the U.S., I went to the U.S. in 1981 uh, to study engineering, and I have a Ph.D. in robotics from MIT. And then in 1999, I completely switched. I quit my job and established the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy in Washington. 
because uh, I discovered after uh, receiving my PhD and working so hard to, to finish my studies uh, that the problem for the Arab world and for the Muslim world is not science and technology, uh, which is why I went into science and technology when I was growing up in Tunisia. I thought, hey, if we can only learn science and technology and master science and technology, we will become like Europe and the United States. We will become strong and powerful and developed and everything. So I thought, and most of us at that time thought that that was what, what was missing. But after living in the United States for 20 years or, or more, I discovered that that's not really the problem. Science and technology is easy. Uh, some of the best scientists and technologists in the United States are in fact from the Arab world and from the Muslim world, uh, from Pakistan, from India, from Turkey, from Iran, hundreds of thousands of PhDs in every field that you want, in every research center that you want in, in the United States, they are from the Arab and Muslim world. So then I, bega I began to ask, then what is the problem? If we have all these scientists uh, and experts uh, in the United States, in every field, why aren't we benefiting from them in the Arab world, in the Muslim world? Why is the Arab world and the Muslim world so far behind and so less uh, developed? And that's when I um, changed, uh, you know, started to learn and changed my conviction that really the problem is not science and technology. The problem is democracy. And what has allowed the United States and Europe and other nations to become so developed is, the, is democracy, in my opinion. That our main problem in the Arab world and Muslim world is bad governance, is we have authoritarian regimes uh, that um, basically are destroying our countries because they don't know what they're doing, because they, don't, they are not there to serve the interest of the people. They are not there to develop the country. They are there just to, uh, uh, you know, steal the money, basically, and benefit themselves. So I became more and more convinced that this is the main problem. We have to get rid of corrupt regimes and oppressive regimes in the Arab world and Muslim world. But then also I started to ask is, you know, why don't we have democracy in the Muslim world? You know, why most of the Arab world and Muslim world is ruled by authoritarian regimes and, and uh, dictatorships. Well, I mean, with a few exceptions, you know, maybe Malaysia can be considered an, an exception, Turkey, uh, maybe Senegal, you know, but that's it. The others are basically authoritarian regimes uh, that are ruling. So why? Is there a problem in our understanding of Islam that we think somehow democracy is not Islamic, or that somehow Islam is not compatible with democracy, or democracy is not compatible with Islam. So that's why we founded the Center for the Study of Islam and Democracy in 1999, so almost exactly 20 years ago. Uh, and uh, we've been working on, on this topic of compatibility between Islam and democracy for the last 20 years, and we've had major conferences and seminars and workshops uh, all over the Arab and Muslim world and in Washington, D.C. We discovered, and if you go to our website, you will see a lot of these papers and publications, uh, that there is no incompatibility uh, between Islam and democracy, at least on the theoretical level. And there are hundreds of books and papers that talk about that, you know, the ideas of freedom, the ideas of shura, the ideas of... Uh, you know, we can talk about it a lot. But then on the practical level, of course, we still don't, don't have democracy in many Islamic countries. And that's why when we, have the, uh, when we had the Arab Spring in uh, early 2011, uh, CSID basically moved its headquarters from Washington to Tunis, uh, Tunisia. And we've been based in Tunis for the last eight years. And while before 2011, we were having activities and conferences all over the Arab and Islamic world, after 2011, it's Tunis, that's it. <laughs> and we made that as a conscious decision because we wanted to have a success story coming from the Arab Spring. Uh, we, we knew that democratic transitions are inherently difficult. We knew and we discovered even more in the last eight years that uh, it's easier to get rid of dictatorship. 
than to build a democracy. That building a democracy is very, very hard and takes time and takes a lot of planning, takes a lot of patience, a lot of hard work. So that's why for the last eight years we've been focused on Tunisia. And as you know, Tunisia is the only success story from the five countries that had revolutions in 2011. Uh, Tunisia, it started in Tunisia and then quickly spread to Libya, Egypt, Syria, and Yemen. Now, the other four countries are basically in a civil war. Uh, Egypt is a military dictatorship uh, worse than Mubarak, worse than the regime that they had before the revolution. And the other three, Libya, Yemen, and Syria, are basically civil wars. So Tunisia is the only one that has escaped from this either return to dictatorship or civil wars. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about very briefly today and maybe in the discussion, answer questions. But also I want to say that recent events in Sudan and in Algeria prove that the Arab Spring is not over. It's still kicking, it's still alive. For the last four months, we've had peaceful demonstrations every day and every week in Algeria and in Sudan, and they've been able to get rid of the dictatorship in Sudan and in Algeria. And now they are negotiating with the military to have a transfer of power and to build a new democracy. So this is proof that the um, Arab people in every country uh, want freedom and want democracy. And that this desire, despite all these problems in Libya and Egypt and Yemen and Syria, that the Arab people still are uh, longing for freedom and for democracy. So, but as I said, that democracy, building a democracy is not easy. It takes time. We have to be patient. We have to know what we are doing. We have to have experts and we have to learn from experts in other countries. We have to be modest and see how other countries succeeded in their democratic transitions. Learn from the experience of other countries rather than be self-centered and only think that we know everything and we know what we are doing which is not true because we have never done this before. <laughs> so we have to be, uh, we have to have a sense of humility and a sense of uh, uh, ability to learn from experience of others. So let me talk very quickly about five challenges that we faced in Tunisia and that we are still facing in Tunisia and how we are uh, addressing them. So the number one challenge is uh, how do you build and maintain national unity? in uh, a transition to democracy. I don't call Tunisia a democracy yet. We, are, we call ourselves a tran in transition to democracy with the understanding that transitions last at least 15 years and usually 20 years or and sometimes, sometimes longer. If we look at other countries all over the world that have gone from dictatorship to democracy, it takes at least 20 years. And if you think that you're gonna do it in less than 15 years or 20 years, you are wrong. It's impossible. So we are eight years after the revolution. We are like halfway in, uh, in our transition to democracy. Uh, but it's very important to maintain national unity during this period of transition. Now, in a democracy, it's not a problem because you have democratic institutions, strong institutions. You have traditions, democratic traditions, and you have a culture of democracy. So you win with 51% or even... 50% plus one, that's it. You govern and the country stays stable and everything is fine. But in a transition to democracy, that's not the case. You cannot govern with 51%. It's impossible. Why? Because the other 49% are not going to let you govern. The reason they're not going to let you govern is because they are afraid. Because we don't have a democracy yet. And they are afraid that you have 51% and you're going to take over everything and basically kick them out and take away their rights because that's what they have been used to in the dictatorship. So you have to govern by consensus and by compromise. And you have to involve everyone, not just govern by 51%. You cannot govern by 51% in a democratic transition. So this is the number one lesson that I think we have learned in Tunisia, that I think other countries, uh, especially Egypt, did not learn this, uh, this uh, lesson. And 
they thought that they got they can govern with 51% or even with 60% or even with 70%. They passed the constitution uh, in 2012 in Egypt uh, with 66%. They had a referendum on the constitution. But that means that one third of the population did not recognize or did not approve the constitution. In the case of Egypt, one third is about 30 million. What does it mean to have 30 million people do not accept the constitution or do not recognize or do not think it's their constitution? It means you have divided the country and it means that you are asking for trouble and possibility of civil war, which is what happened. In Tunisia, uh, instead of writing a constitution very quickly, which you can do, you, writing a constitution is easy. You can bring uh, 10, 15, 20 constitutional experts in a room like this and give them a couple of weeks and they write you the best con constitution in the world. It's not that hard. What's hard is the consensus around the constitution. What's hard is, is selling that constitution or uh, having the people believe that it is their constitution. And to do that, they have to own it, which means they have to participate in it. And they have to believe it's, that it is their constitution. It was not imported. It was not um, uh, written by somebody else. And that, so that's what we did in, the, in uh, 2012, 2013. We took two years to write the constitution, but with consensus, with the idea that we wanted a, a, a constitution for all Tunisians, not for the majority of Tunisians, but for all Tunisians. So we had hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of debates about the constitution all over the country. It's not just for experts. It's not just for lawyers. It's not just for politicians. Uh, it's for everybody. All the citizens were involved in these debates about the constitution. And I think that really made a big difference. But that's an example of how we were able to build consensus. And when it passed in the, in the parliament, we did not want a referendum because, again, referendum was going to divide the country. When it passed in the, in the uh, parliament, which was actually called the Constituent Assembly because the main purpose of this assembly was elected to write a constitution, uh, it passed with 200 uh, out of 216 members of the, of the parliament. So almost every single political party approved the constitution. Few independents did not, but uh, overwhelmingly there was unity around the constitution. Civil society, of course, played a very important role in the dialogue uh, on the constitution. But in, this con in the constitution and also following the constitution, uh, you know, we had a lot of debates about how we build unity. And specifically in the case of Tunisia, the major difference, because we are 99% Muslim, so we are all basically Muslim, but the major difference is, is about the role of religion in the state and in the public sphere. So we have what we call the Islamic movement, Islamism, political Islam, whatever you want to call it. I don't like any of these words personally. And in Tunisia, we are now using the word Muslim Democrat for, for the Nahva movement. They have chosen this, this category or this name because word Islamism and political Islam is becoming uh, very vague, you know, and not clear what it means. You know, it can include everybody <laughs> from Daesh to, you know, anybody who has the Tahrir and all these, they all call themselves political Islam or Islamic movements or whatever. So uh, we, have, we are divided in Tunisia in that roughly 50% of Tunisians uh, are uh, secular Democrats, and they believe that the state should be secular, that Islam basically is the religion, but has nothing to do with public sphere and should not have anything to do with the, with the public life of the country. The other 50% uh, think, no, Islam is a way of life. It's not just about praying and fasting. Islam has something to do with public sphere and public life. So how do we build... Uh, unity and compromise between these two halves of the society. If we don't succeed in that, we're going to fail because these are, neither side can govern alone and neither, neither side 
uh, can exclude the other side. So we have to find, a comp especially during a transition to democracy, when both sides are afraid that if the other side takes over, they're going to exclude them. And therefore, there is tension. So this compromise is really extremely important. Uh, and, and the dialogue between the secular Democrats and the Muslim Democrats, I think, is extremely important to build a successful transition and a, suc a successful democracy. As an example, and I, can, I have you know, 20 different examples I can give you, but I don't have a lot of time. Um, you know, there was a clause in the Constitution about freedom of religion. I think Tunisia is the only one that has in the Constitution, only Muslim country, that has in, in its constitution freedom of religion and freedom of conscience, meaning that people can believe in whatever religion they want, even though we are 99% Muslim, but people can believe in whatever religion they want or they can change their religion. So that was a very tough, as you can imagine, a very tough uh, discussion, but uh, we had months and months of discussions uh, on this topic, with, including with religious leaders and with the different parties. Um, and finally, they all accepted this clause. And they said, yes, you know, in Islam, there is no compulsion. And so people should be free to believe whatever they want. This is an Islamic principle. It's not just a democratic principle. And uh, if somebody wants to change his or her religion, it doesn't make sense to say, no, 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 you were born Muslim, and therefore you have to remain Muslim whether you really believe in it or not. You know, we said, no, we don't want that. Because that, if we do that, then we are creating hypocrites. We are creating people who maybe are called Muslim, but they are not really Muslim. We'd rather have them say that, no, I'm not Muslim, rather than claim they are Muslim. And you know, in Islam, munafiqeen is the worst kind. You know, hypocrites are the worst kind. So it's better to say, to give freedom of religion, let them choose whatever they believe in, rather than force them to say they are Muslim, even though they are not really Muslim or they don't really believe in Islam. So this is an example of the debates that are uh, still ongoing in Tunisia. But in this case, this was done in the Constitution and resolved in the Constitution and put in the Constitution with the approval of all the parties. Another debate ongoing right now in Tunisia is the inheritance law. And maybe you've heard about it. But there is also a big debate about can we change the inheritance law or not. So again, it's, it's a debate. So that's number one challenge. But I think the most important challenge is building unity and compromise and consensus between all, all the people and, and letting everybody know that they are part of the new Tunisia and that their rights will be protected. And that's how they will have confidence in the new democratic Tunisia and they will support. Otherwise they will be afraid and they will support a military coup, which is basically what happened in Egypt or elsewhere because they were afraid. So the number two challenge is the economy. I, I would say that even though we succeeded in the, number, in the first challenge, so far we are failing in the second challenge, which is how do we develop the economy? How do we create jobs? How do we improve standards of living of all, for all Tunisians? And so this is a really main, main challenge, still ongoing. Uh, at the end of the day, democracy has to deliver better quality of life and better standards of living and, 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 be and better jobs. And if it doesn't, it will fail because people will say, okay, I, I like freedom, but first of all, I have to eat. <laughs> I need a job. I need to, I need to have uh, food on the table. I need to... So it's a still a major challenge in Tunisia, and uh, we are trying to focus more and more on this uh, challenge uh, of how do we create uh, economic growth and prosperity. We're working on it, but it's very hard. Number three is corruption. The revolution, when it started in 2011, was thawra, So it's a revolution against corruption and dictatorship. This is the slogan of the revolution from day one, from when it started. So all Tunisians will say we have succeeded in getting rid of dictatorship but we haven't yet succeeded in getting rid of corruption. 
And again, it's a major problem. Uh, we are working on it. Uh, we uh, want to learn from the experience of other countries that have succeeded in fighting corruption. It's a, it's a huge problem and it's not easy. What we have seen after the revolution, and I'm, I'm told that this happens in every democratic transition. Uh, in the beginning of the transition, actually, uh, it appears that corruption grows for two reasons. First of all, uh, because you have what is called uh, democratization of corruption. Under dictatorship, uh, only few people control corruption, usually at the top. And so they, the corruption is rampant, but controlled by this gr small group of people. In a democracy, where after you get rid of dictatorship, it becomes democratic, you know. <laughs> corruption becomes more, uh, anybody can do corruption. It becomes more uh, accessible. <laughs> so it's not just at the hands of the few, anybody can do it. And so it seems that it's done, it, it becomes more. And also it seems that it becomes more because we can talk about it. That's the other reason why it appears that it is more. Under dictatorship, nobody can talk about it. If they do, they end up in jail very quickly. So right now, there is, that is the, the, uh, the uh, impression that people have in Tunisia that somehow corruption has gotten worse after the revolution. And therefore we need to work on, um, on this problem of corruption. So that's number three uh, challenge and still ongoing. Number four challenge is fighting terrorism and violence. And um, I don't know if it's a coincidence or what, but uh, all these terrorist groups appeared suddenly uh, after the Arab Spring in 2012, 2013. We didn't have Daesh. Yes, we had Al-Qaeda in, in uh, Afghanistan basically started and then in Iraq after the invasion. But now Daesh is everywhere. And it started in 2012 and 2013. All of a sudden, because uh, in a democratic transition, you kind of have a weak state. Uh, I remember nine months after the revolution, for nine months, you couldn't see a police officer anywhere in the streets of Tunis. So for nine months. Uh, so in that period of time, terrorism tends to grow and extremism tends to grow and it becomes a threat. And, uh, and somehow people think that the democracy, because it respects human rights, cannot provide stability or cannot fight extremism and terrorism. And this is a major challenge, especially when, during a period of transition to democracy. I think fighting extremism and terrorism is very hard, even for stable democracies. Because the task is how, you know, the question or the challenge is how do you fight extremism and terrorism without giving up values of democracy and human rights? And we know that many countries have failed, including the United States, where I lived in, uh, after 9-11, where we had the Patriot Act. I don't know if you heard about the fa famous Patriot Act, but it's uh, this big and it was passed in one month after, after the 9-11. I am told from many people in, uh, in, in Washington, nobody read it because they passed it in one month. It's impossible to read this much <laughs> in one month. Congressmen passed it and voted on it basically unanimously, but without reading it because it was meant to protect the country. It was put a lot of emphasis on security and protection and all that, but at the expense of human rights and freedom and, and democracy. And uh, frankly, tens of thousands of Arabs and Muslims, American Arabs and American Muslims, uh, suffered a lot. Not to talk about Abu Ghraib and uh, what's the other, uh, Guantanamo Bay and all these things, but even within the United States, uh, there were a lot of abuses of human rights of Arab Americans and Muslim Americans after 9-11. So fighting extremism and, 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 uh, and terrorism is hard, even for a stable democracy like the United States. And of course, after a while it swings back and it corrects itself. That's what's nice about democracy. Democracy doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. Democracy, we, mean, we make mistakes all the time. Democracy simply means that we have a chance to correct those mistakes. We find out the mistakes and we correct them. So in Tunisia, it's even, uh, we, have, we face the same challenge. 
Libya is next door. Libya basically does not have a state. Uh, uh, is is very chaotic. There are many extremist and terrorist groups in Libya, and uh, we have basically an open border with Libya, so people can uh, walk in and out uh, between Libya and Tunisia at, uh, at any time. And we have, you know, ten to twenty thousand people crossing the border every day. So how do you mean? How do you maintain security uh, in a democratic transition? Is very hard. Um, how do you show? that a democracy can provide stability and security. Because this is the main argument that autocrats and dictators use in the Arab world and in the Muslim world. You know, we need security first, we need stability, and therefore we need dictatorship because dictatorship can provide security and stability. But the impression they want to create is that a democracy cannot provide stability and security. And we have to show the, the opposite. And I think Tunisia has succeeded in this challenge. In the last three to four years, between 2015 until 2019, we have made huge progress in fighting extremism and terrorism in Tunisia, in building very strong military and police presence without giving up human rights and democracy uh, in Tunisia, which is very challenging, but I think we have succeeded. We have involved imams in fighting extremism. Imams uh, have played a very important role and they've been trained in how to counter extremist rhetoric and extremist uh, and violent rhetoric in the mosques and, and uh, in the rural areas and so on. But that's a big challenge. And uh, on this challenge, we succeeded. The fifth challenge, which is still ongoing, is uh, interference from other countries. There are countries in the region and I will name them because I, I'm, uh, I'm not afraid of them and because we have to speak up against them. Uh, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates are determined to not let democracy succeed because they are afraid of democracy. They think that if democracy succeeds, they will be next. And therefore, they want to destroy democracy before it, uh, uh, it comes to them. So... There is no question now that United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia were behind the coup in Egypt, for example, that they funded the coup, that they planned the coup, that they gave billions of dollars before the coup and after the coup, and that they are supporting Sisi. They even supported Sisi in Washington, D.C. In order for Washington to support Sisi, they played a big role. Uh, you know, Obama was, was president at the time. Obama initially was against the coup for one year, uh, after the coup, he did not recognize uh, the new regime. He did not recognize Sisi. He cut off military aid and, and uh, economic and military support and assistance and all that. But they put a lot of pressure, UAE and Saudi Arabia, on, in Washington to change that policy so that uh, they accept uh, Sisi. And they, I think they are doing the same thing right now in Tunisia. They don't want democracy to succeed and they're spending millions if not billions of dollars in Tunisia to make it fail, to make the democratic transition fail. So it's a big challenge and we are fighting, still fighting this, uh, this threat and this challenge to our nascent democracy. So we have five challenges. We succeeded on two and uh, failed on one, which is the economy, and we're struggling on the other two. So it's a, a balanced <laughs> score. 10 out of 20, maybe something like that. But um, we have elections coming up in October. This will be our fifth election in nine years, fifth national elections, uh, parliamentary and presidential elections coming up in October, November, and December. And I'm confident that, inshallah, uh, democracy will succeed in Tunisia, and we will prove that democracy is possible in the Arab world and can deliver better results and better standard of living uh, for all Tunisians. Thank you very much. So thank you so much, Dr. Uh, I think it's very enlightening to hear about, uh, very enlightening to hear about five challenges and uh, to, to transition. I think we can talk a lot more about it. I hope to have some questions on Slido or even if not Slido, then we can, we can ask in, in person. Uh, you, you gave yourself a score maybe 20 out of 50 or 10 out of 50 as I 10 out of 20 10 out of 50 is 
Yeah, the note identity. We at Ideas also had a scoring mechanism for the ruling coalition government. We recently also released our own assessment, and they're not doing too bad. Actually, we 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 found out that they have um, either or completed or on the way of completion about 30% of their promises in the economic field, actually, which you highlighted. And uh, but it is an ongoing debate here. But about Malaysia, then we over to you, Benny. Ben Ibrahim, please. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for making time this uh, uh, late morning to to be with us. And I really enjoyed the presentation by Dr. Ridwan because I think we are in Malaysia only, you know, walking into the first year of the new government, the new transition. And certainly, if we look around the neighborhood, you know, and look at countries like Indonesia, it certainly is at least a 15 to 20 year project uh, to move. From a, a maybe a more a less liberal, a less a more restrictive environment into one that is uh, a more uh, respective of uh, rule of law and and processes. I think if we, before we go into the slides, I think if we reflect in terms of what happened last year, it's just only last year in May last year at the point of the change in government. Uh, you know, the change in government in in many ways is interesting because. Uh, as a polling organization, you know, we continue to track public sentiments. And in the wake of the election, we found that although the current ruling coalition only attained about 48% of the popular vote, we found that at least through surveys, more than 80% of the voters of Malaysians accepted the election results, which meant that even the people who didn't vote for PH uh, accepted the election results. And uh, what really drove people uh, to the ballot boxes you know, more than a year ago? Uh, it's principally two reasons. Number one, I think, uh, uh, and this is a, a wide-ranging, widespread sentiment, uh, a, a sense of disgust and unhappiness over corruption, uh, ineptitude, and a leadership that had grown very much out of touch with the plight of the people and you know, widespread denial of, I think, very, very clear uh, wrongdoings with respect to how government was being run. And second uh, was the increasing pressure felt by ordinary Malaysians with respect to getting, getting on with life. A lot of people's wages have been stagnant. Uh, you know, what we see here in Malaysia is also the same as everywhere else around the world. You know, wages have hardly grown over the last two, three decades. But the prices of staple goods and services have increased multiple times. And I think this in part you know, is an influence on, on how... Uh, democratization has, you know, taken place uh, around the world. I think before we talk about Malaysia, you know, I, I want to talk about the, the situational analysis. You know, what's, what is it is like with democracies around the world? I mean, there is a general view that democracy is in recession, at least in the last 10, 15 years, that after the big third wave of democratization, uh, you know, basically in the late 90s, the number of democracies have fallen by about 20, 25 countries. Uh, many countries have, have uh, you know, seen an upsurge in uh, democratic breakthrough elections and so on, but then subsequently uh, an authoritarian uh, mode of management has crept in. So we have in the bottom graph down below, you, know, you can see countries like Hungary, you know, uh, under the new Prime Minister Orban has recently won the election again, but, you know, has won on the right, uh, on, on, by riding populism and also restricting civil liberties. You have similar situation in Poland. We have situation in Russia where, you know, things didn't actually go into escape velocity and it has actually crept back into authoritarianism. We have Turkey. Uh, which is ups and downs, and I think the general view, and this is stuff coming from Freedom House, uh, and we have the United States that always been generally up there, but in the last, in the recent, in the current term, uh, we have seen rollbacks in terms of civil liberties and also uh, democratic practice in government. And then we have the situation in Venezuela, the socialist paradise, where things have continued to decline uh, amidst empty supermarket shelves. So we have the situation where uh, democracy is in retreat in the rest of the world. And when we look in the context of Malaysia, situated in this whole broader picture, we see a beacon of hope that Malaysia certainly bucked the trend. Uh, and But that this situation is still unfolding because we are still in the very early stages. And even now, we see uh, populist people who want to mobilize support are using issues related to globalization uh, to, to try and 
turn it against uh, the people that are in power. And there are people who see examples like China and others where uh, there is no democracy but has managed to provide better standard of living or at least better economic opportunities for its people and given uh, them hope that you know, democracy need not be a way. There are other challenges in store in the future, you know, technology and, and, um, and, and increased trade and so on will certainly make jobs and, and even ideology is obsolete in the future, but that's maybe further down the road. If you look at, you know, our neighborhood here in Southeast Asia, most of the countries here are not really democracies. You know, if you look at the Indochina countries, you know, they, they've not really had elections for decades. Uh, and even if you look in the region, uh, in terms of uh, freedom index, most countries uh, don't really rank uh, very highly uh, in terms of uh, the quality of freedoms. Uh, it's only small countries like Timor-Leste that has somehow put together a workable you know, set of freedoms, the guaranteed set of freedoms for its citizens, whereas other countries uh, have not been able to actually broaden uh, practice of civil liberties. Uh, and, and why is this so? And in part, it's because many of the countries in the region, those that have regular elections, are hybrid regimes. This is a political science uh, terminology where you have uh, a government that permits the exercise of civil liberties. You have some freedom of speech, but maybe you don't have the freedom after you make the speech. You know that kind of cliche? Uh, uh, you have multiple, you have regular multi-party multi elections, but the same guy always wins. Or, or you know, makes it very difficult. You have free elections, but it's not fair because the boundaries are done in a certain way or suddenly you have 2 million extra voters added, you know, two months before election as what happened in Cambodia uh, in the last uh, general election there. So that's what uh, we see in the neighborhood in Southeast Asia. Uh, and so we did have, however, despite all of this, uh, this, I think, very genuine electoral breakthrough in May 2018. Uh, so is this a new area era where we see some billboards putting out there in the new Malaysia, you know, everything tastes better? Is that the case? Or are we actually seeing a continuation of uh, the previous uh, type of regime where it's still a hybrid regime that has inbuilt institutional resilience? So it continues to run things as it passed, as it's done in the past, but has only merely maybe changed the elites, the people in charge. And in the context of Malaysia, you know, hybrid regimes generally work partly because we have a divided society. Only about two-thirds of the population are Muslim. And then we have two different parts of the country, the one that's attached to mainland Asia and then the one that's floating away in Borneo that have different sentiments there uh, that allows for some kind of divide and rule uh, to take place. So all of this you know, allows advantages to be built in for those that are in charge, for those that are in power. If we just recollect Malaysia before 2018, you know, we have uh, increasing centralization of power in the office of the executive, specifically the prime minister. But it's also uh, allowed the centralization of blame. The more power you accumulate under one person, the more that one person is responsible for what goes right or wrong in the country. Dr. Mahathir was lucky in the sense that the first run as prime minister, there was no internet. The economy was growing at more than 7% a year uh, and, and the growth rates was high enough that more, there were more jobs than there were citizens entering the workforce. Now, our growth rates is only 4.5-4.6% per annum. You know, what's, what's really stated there? We don't know what the true numbers are. Which means that every year, there'll be some people that falls off into the cracks that can't get jobs or at least the jobs that they are qualified for. So that breeds resentments. And in order to keep or maintain the system uh, from falling apart, controls on civil liberties, I think, are part and parcel. So that explains why, you know, the country for years, uh, you know, in, in the decades prior to 2018, ranked very low in terms of press freedom index, uh, the corruption index, electoral integrity index. You can look these things up. I mean, in terms of electoral integrity, uh, I think we are better than Cambodia by like one score or something like that. <laughs> Let's just say number 142 out of 157. <laughs> we still haven't fixed it yet. Uh, so these are things that, uh, that govern the, the situation, uh, Malaysia. But 
Despite these very low democratic and civil liberties indexes that's favored by CSOs and, and people that want to champion reform, the reality is that we have a strong state in Malaysia that's been able to provide very high human development opportunities. We have one of the best, you know, arguably best uh, health, universal healthcare system. Not perfect, but most people can get access to healthcare, decent education, superb infrastructure networks that allows people uh, the opportunity to succeed if they choose to. And this also has provided the stability that's allowed for us in Malaysia to generate economic growth. But all of that fell apart, partly because of the politics of the movement in 2018 that allowed the majority Malay vote to be split between the Islamist party, the Nationalist party, UMNO, and then the reform parties under uh, Pakatan Harapan to allow them to win on a plurality in May 2018. So, what were their promises? You know, Pakatan Harapan is an interesting uh, conglomerate of different parties that you know campaign not just on you know socio-economic uh, populist promise, promises such as reducing your student loans, but then uh, reducing road tolls and sales tax and so on. But they also you know had in their very thick manifesto book many 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 promises related to democratic governance. Uh, removing restrictions on civil liberties and so on, ending the manipulation of elections, for example, separating powers, uh, reducing the powers of the uh, executive, you know, like the PM cannot hold more than one position, the appointment of judges, election commissioners, anti-corruption commissioners are supposed to be made uh, by the parliament. So things like that are in the pipeline. It's promised, it's in the pipeline, and every now and then we see the statements moving in that direction. So these are promising pledges uh, that uh, we see uh, happen. And in the last one year, we've seen the government struggling but working very hard to make good on these promises. And if we look at what's happening in Malaysia, in the context of the challenges that Dr. Ridwan mentioned earlier, keeping national unity together, fighting corruption, fighting extremism, and building the, growing the economy, these are things that are also relevant to Malaysia. I think where the Malaysian government has I think, made tremendous progress, a visible progress, is addressing the crimes of the past. The people who've done wrong in the past are, uh, I think, having the justice system look into their situation. But the socio-economic pressures remain. We have a relatively young population, maybe 60-65% of Malaysians are under the age of 30 years old. Uh, we have an economy that's built for export orientation, but we face increased challenges from neighbors that are uh, working at much cheaper rates than uh, we can. We also have a long-term challenge of an economy that's de-industrializing. We are losing high-tech jobs when we are replacing them with jobs at Papa Rich and hotels and so on. So we are going into low-end service service sector, but we are losing our programmers, our uh, cheap board designers and, and things like that. So that's a long-term challenge that we face uh, uh, with respect to the economy. And meanwhile, uh, the government has to keep it together. And, and to keep it together is, I think, the first challenge that Dr. Ridwan mentioned, which is building consensus, ensuring that everybody's included in this process. And I think his point is important. I keep reminded by this because Pakatan only won 48% of the popular vote. It can enact most of the reforms without getting support from parties across the aisle. And that is why I think if we look at just what happened in the last few days, last week, um, we have people like Said Sadiq going around talking to Haji Hadi about getting support for uh, even Najib, talking to Najib to get support for Undi 18, for Undi 18 because you need to get that. So people need to set aside their political differences in order to get uh, reforms. Uh, so these are the challenges. You know, we have, uh, I think, I wouldn't say rollback, but stalling, things are stalling with respect to uh, civil liberties reform. A lot of the restrictive laws like POTA, SOSMA and others are still there on the books. Our friend, you know, Wanji just got handed a 12-month jail sentence yesterday for insulting the Sultan of Selangor under the Sedition Act. So it's still there on the books and currently being enforced. So we have that uh, going on. Uh, we have the situation with governance. Perhaps it is being democratized now that back in the day, only a handful of people could get the really you know, nice plum contracts, but now it's being democratized, so other people are getting access to contracts and GRC directorships, so rent-seeking continues. 
but I think more critically, and one that really threatens the fabric of the country is mobilization of identity politics, which underpins the politics and the way of life in this country. So we have uh, the government's intention to ratify inter international conventions. That's being stopped or scrapped for the moment, partly because it can offend the 80% of the Malays that didn't vote for them. So it certainly calls for the need to compromise and the need to build consensus. So I think to conclude, we are still, like I said, in the very early stages. If democracy is to take root, then it needs to build consensus and have the courage to move beyond uh, the current situation where it is very easy to slip back into the old mode of you know, going to do a hybrid, hybrid democracy where uh, you, know, you just basically change the elites, you just change the guys that are in power, but everything works pretty much the same. And hybrid regimes can basically survive electoral breakthroughs. We've seen this happen in many other examples of democratization in Russia, in Poland, in Hungary, and all that, where in the, at the end of the day, the guys that come in charge, in the end, use the institutions in order to perpetuate their rule and prevent them from uh, persecution. So it is uh, the challenge that Malaysia has. It's still a work in progress. Uh, we'll be keeping watch. And I'm sure groups like Ideas will continue to monitor progress on pledges. But I think it's more than just pledges. Uh, it's, I think, the need to build a new culture of uh, debate, uh, build a new culture of gaining consensus, and also respecting one another that the politics cannot trump beyond national unity and solidarity. That's I think I'll end here and hope we have a couple of minutes for questions. Thanks. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Ben. Very interesting uh, indeed. Uh, we talked about hybrid regime and you emphasized rightly on the role of institutions uh, changing from one elite to another elite, though in Malaysia we have the same elite. <laughs> uh, broadly speaking, uh, but I totally agree that the institutions is the key uh, that you have emphasized um, and civil liberties. Uh, I think we totally agree as as an observer, as as ideas that that is really. So I mentioned about liberal and illiberal democracies. So you have rightly emphasized those challenges, along with the economic challenges. I think that is where. In a, in a way, both countries have similarities, uh, the broad economic challenges, despite attaining reasonable level of growth in the case of Malaysia. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about our work, please log on to www.ideas.org.my.